Okay. So my name is Alec. Most of you know me. Thank you. Thank you. Most of you know me. If you don't, I would love to meet you. That's what we say here. We love to meet people. Um, so we have been, for those that you have not been with us, we have been in First Peter for the first semester, and then we have been making our way to Second Peter for the second semester. It has been a long, long journey. We made our way. We slogged through Ecclesiastes for some of you. For me, that was a huge joy. But uh, one of the things that we wanted to do um, as we were making our way through uh, the book of First Peter is we wanted to show you um, some of the moments of Jesus and his main disciple, or one of his main disciples with Peter. And we have walked through this guy's, all of this guy's garbage, okay? We walked through his life from the beginning with his calling. We saw him as a fisherman. We saw him deny Jesus. We saw everything. Um, tonight is actually going to be the last night um, that we have a moment from the gospel with Peter and Jesus. It's actually after the gospel in Acts. And then we're going to be back in Second Peter to start that off. And I am very, very excited about the message tonight. You could kind of call it a climax of all the trajectory of Peter's discipleship. We're going to be in Acts 2. And one of the reasons that I am excited about this is today we are looking at the gospel's first proclamation from the church, when it's the church's turn to live out fully what Jesus had been saying. You see, Jesus died and rose again, and then he passed the baton off to his people. He passed the baton off to his disciples. And here in Acts 2, we see them take it and run with it. And it's going to be incredible. And we have to go to the book of Acts for that. The message tonight is actually very simple. Um, um, spoiler, it's all going to be centered around verse 36. I'm going to go ahead and read that for you. The key verse tonight is verse 36, and it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, both Lord and Savior. And what I hope to do, I hope to do two things tonight. The first part of the night, I hope to just walk through the arguments in this sermon that Peter gives and see what it means or how he tries to prove that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, how we can know for certainty, in his words. And the second part of the night, I want to analyze and apply that to us. What does it mean that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior? That's what I'm hoping to do. We're going to be in the book of Acts, and Acts is my, one of my top favorite books in the Bible. Um, Acts is a history of the church, and, but it's kind of more than that. Acts is a history of Jesus' work in the church. Acts 1 begins with this kind of cryptic phrase. Um, it says, all, I write to you, Theophilus, all that Jesus began to do in Luke and in Acts, it's all that Jesus is continuing to do. See, see, Jesus had an earthly ministry, and in Acts, he has a continued ministry, but it is through the church. 
And the Spirit is that primary actor. The Spirit moves through His people, and His people are doing the very same things that Jesus did while He was on earth. And Acts is one of my favorites because of the absolute transformation that it shows. I mean, you've seen Peter earlier. You saw him as a fisherman. You saw him try to step out on, on the waves, and, and he failed, and he, he sank because he didn't have enough faith. You saw him rebuked by Jesus. You remember that moment when he was called Satan? When he said, like, get behind me, Satan, when Peter was called that? You saw him deny Jesus. The Gospels paint Peter as a faithless and, and, and foolish man. But here in Acts, Peter is something completely different. Some of the things that you see Peter do, you see him stand before the Sanhedrin and confront them to their face of their injustice, of their wickedness. He pronounces judgment on the church, and it happens in that moment. What he says happens. God moves through him. You see him walk by, and his shadow heals people. And you see him declare the good news boldly to all people. Peter doesn't look like Peter anymore. Peter looks just like Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. I mean, who else did you see standing up and confronting the unjust leaders, the Sanhedrin? That was Jesus. And Jesus heals people everywhere he goes, but now it's Peter. And Jesus declares the kingdom of God to the crowds, but now it's, it's Peter's turn. And I think it's amazing that, that Peter is, is not just Peter. Peter looks just like Jesus in the book of Acts. And the reason is, this, this, this total transformation, is that the Spirit of God is now completely at work in Peter's life. That's what, that's what Jesus promised him. In Acts 1, verse 8, P, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, You will receive power from above, and you will be my witness in your home, in your country, and to the ends of the world. You will be like me. You will be my hands and feet wherever you go, a transformed man. So to set the scene for today, that's what Jesus promises. That's what happens. And when that moment, when this, this Spirit of God is poured out, it's kind of crazy, okay? The Christians are gathered together, they're, they're praying, they're worshiping, kind of like what we're going to do after this sermon. And then in that, there's this moment when the windows are thrown open, and the wind blows in kind of like a tornado, and tongues of fire, little flames go on above every Christian in the room which is similar to how God appeared in the Old Testament. And in that moment, these, these Christians, they start speaking in different languages. It's kind of like a, a wild mess that happens. And people show up and they say, what, what the heck is happening? These people are drunk. They're out of their mind. And Peter takes that as a cue. This, these People are drunk. I don't know if that's a good thing to say about the church in that day, that, that drunkenness is what they look like or not. But he takes that as a cue and to start speaking the first gospel message. And for that, we're going to turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 22 through 41. Let's hop in. 
Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourself know. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you, accredited to you, authenticated, proven, validated to you by God. It's kind of something interesting. We don't really think in light of miracles, but Peter, that's the first thing that he goes to. He says, you saw the very power of Jesus. God himself proved that Jesus was who he said he was. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just find it odd. I just, I just want to say this. When we're talking about the, the God proving who Jesus is, that the we don't really believe in miracles. I mean, we don't really see miracles. It's kind of natural. Miracles are very rare. But Jesus' own enemies, okay, the Jews who did not believe in him and the Gentiles who didn't believe in, in like, the Jewish God at all, they believed in the miracles, but they sought to disprove them. They sought to invalidate them. The Jewish skeptics acknowledged his miracles. They only said that they came from the devil. The early Christian skeptic, one guy by the name of Celsus, who's most famous for disproving or disbelieving in, in Jesus, he also acknowledges the miracles. I find that interesting. He just says it's some form of human sorcery, that Jesus somehow had this power, but we don't really know how it is. But both of them, who don't believe in Jesus, Acknowledge that he had power. I find that interesting. And Peter, at the very beginning, says that that is God. That is God validating Jesus, as everyone in that crowd had been witnesses of. Let's continue in verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be killed by death. Two things I want to say. One is I just want to remind you that Peter is speaking to the very people who killed Jesus. Those were the, the people in the crowd that were, that were screaming, crucify him, and that were with with Jesus at the crucifixion, that they were, they were part of that, he says, you delivered him up. But he says something interesting. I don't know if you caught that. The words there. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. I just want to give you some clarity here. Peter is saying that God willed that Jesus should die. Planned for it intended for it from the very beginning the death of his son how strange we're going to come back to that for a moment but i just want you to remember uh, matthew 16 is one of the earlier sermons that we gave uh, that time when uh, peter got called satan by jesus he said get behind me satan that moment when peter was called satan by jesus was because he rejected the death of jesus he says, you're not going to die. You're going to live. The Messiah has to live. And Jesus says, you're not in line with God's plans. 
How far has Peter come that not only does he acknowledge God's plans, but he has said that it was always God's plan that the Son should come and die on the cross? Hearing this fact, seeing that verse, what does that do to to you? Some cry out when they hear this, they say something along the lines of divine child abuse. Some will say um, that God isn't wrathful towards sin, that that, that can't be true. God wouldn't send His Son to die, that doesn't make sense. Some would simply say, how unfair. And to the last one, I think that's kind of true, you know, unfair that Jesus would, would take it, but that's what He wanted. Fairness that we, it's unfair that we didn't get it, but unfair that we get the righteousness of God, but I think I'm making my point. Um, Whatever it is, I need you to see how clearly the Bible speaks that it is always God's plan that Jesus would come and die. It was God's plan from the beginning. Romans 8.23 says this, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Revelations 13.8 says this, The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. John 3.16, one that most people are familiar with, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. It was God's plan from the beginning. But it wasn't just God's plan. It was also Jesus' plan. It was Jesus' plan and His joy. Hebrews 12.12 says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. For the joy on the other side of the cross... Jesus chose to die for the joy, for what would come after the cross, for the redemption of the world, for the redemption of you. It was a joy for Jesus to come and die for you. How beautiful. How brilliant, how determined. For thousands of years, God has watched all the evils of mankind, for He knew that the Son was coming. Before human beings had even the chance to fall away from Him, before human beings even had the chance to sin, God already had a plan of redemption in place. And that was through His own death. Your redemption through Jesus has always been the plan of God. How beautiful is that? And that is the gospel. And I hope you can hear it. And I hope you can accept it. Now, That is the cross. Peter outlines the cross. And then he keeps moving. He goes towards the resurrection. Verse 24, I'm just going to read it for you again. Uh, He says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death. This metaphor, almost like this literal, like labor pains of death. Because it was not 
possible for him to be held by death. Not possible. How interesting. Not possible for him to be held by death. Now, I believe in the resurrection. I do. But I'm just kind of curious. What would you say would be the reason to follow that? Okay? It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because maybe he was God. Maybe he was... um, so pure. Maybe he was, I have no idea what you would, whatever you would think of coming next. How many of you would say what Peter says next for his reason? It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because he quotes a psalm. He says, for David says of him. The idea is that God keeps his promises. That God made these promises. And one of the promises that he made is that this Son of God would rise again. Let's read it. Verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades. Hades is the land of the dead. Hades is like uh, um, the, the grave to them. You will not abandon me to the grave, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths to me of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Peter says that it is not possible for Jesus to be held by death because God promised that he wouldn't. He says, your Holy One will not see decay all the way back then. Now, I don't know what you see in Psalm 16. Um, Some of you could read that and be like, I don't really see Jesus there. Um, Or some of you would say like, man, Holy One, you will not let me see decay. We could go all kinds of different places there. Um, Psalm 16 on its own could just be kind of nifty, you know? Um, one could make the argument that it, this is Christians maybe rereading older texts for their own sake. Um, I would think, and hopefully this makes sense, that there would need to be an expectation with Psalm 16 for us to look at Psalm 16 and expect this to be about the Messiah. Does that make sense? Like if, if the people of God saw Psalm 16, your Holy One will not see decay, uh, you will not abandon me to the grave, and they saw the Messiah, then I think that would be valid for us to say, yes, this is about Jesus. Fair? Fair. I, I think that's fair. Um, I have something to show you. This is from the next slide. This is from what's called the Midrash Telehim. You, could, you can look this up. I know you, I'm throwing words at you that you have never heard before, and that's okay. Okay, just stay flexible with me. This is called the Midrash Telehim. Um, this is a Jewish commentary on the Scriptures. These are not Christians at all. But the Jews, what they would do is they would write out the Scriptures and they would write out how they read the Scriptures. What kind of expectation would come from that? You can go Google this. It's got, they got all kinds of stuff. 
the midrash of Isaiah, the midrash of Psalms, all over the place. Go look it up on your own time. Here is an interesting verse that comes from the midrash on Psalm 16. It says, verse 26, My heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My honor shall be revealed in the King Messiah who will come from me. As it is said, you see that? The people of God, they saw this text as pointing to a Messiah who is to come. And Peter is using that own expectation. That He's saying, you believe this. We believe this, that God spoke beforehand that you will not abandon me to the grave or allow your Holy One to decay. And he's pointing that and says, God has kept his promises. His logic is so simple. It's beautiful. Let me just read you the next, the next couple of verses, and you can just see the logic itself. He says in verse 29, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. His logic is, we know where the grave of David is. It's right over there. There's historical proof of the grave of David. He's like, we all know it. We can see his words. We believe that David, the, the Spirit of God, was speaking through him about something greater than what the heck was David speaking about? He's speaking about Jesus. And we are witnesses of this fact. David's tomb is still full. Jesus' is not. God has kept his promises of Psalm 16. He's proved the resurrection that was going to happen through Psalm 16. And then he says something very similar through Psalm 110. Verse 33 is next. He says, Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out on what on he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David. He kind of does the same thing. David's still in the grave in Psalm 16. And then here he's like, For it was not David who ascended into, heavens, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This mysterious text in the Old Testament the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Adonai, my master, come up here, sit at my right hand, and I will make all of your enemies your footstool. It's the most interesting thing because David had no master. David was the king, and yet he was speaking about someone or something that was above him that was not God. The Lord said to his Lord, his Adonai, it's confusing. Jesus looks at this verse and he says, what is David talking about? How could David be talking about his own son being his Lord? And then he points to himself as, I am the one that came after David that is greater than David. 
Peter is using the same logic. Once again, this is a messianic psalm that Peter is trying to show them that God has kept His promises to His people. Now, I told you at the very beginning that Peter's answer is verse 36. Let the house of Israel know with certainty that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. But before we get there, I'm going to ask that we just tangent for just a brief moment. See, the predictions, I don't know if you've caught this so far, but Peter has been using the predictions of the past to prove the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Um, I don't know where you are right now in your seats. I don't know if you're with me, you're like, dude, this is awesome. If you're sleeping, I don't know. Um, If you're like, I'm still on the fence about this, I don't really believe in prophecy. Um, And so I just want to just take a moment in the same vein that Peter is arguing and look at some of the major messianic prophecies. We could spend a lot of time here. And so I've just chosen three. We're going to do the Old Testament text and show the New Testament parallel that the Christian says, look how God has kept his promises. I don't really know, this is my confession, how to argue for prophecies. Like, if we don't really believe in miracles in our modern society, how do you prove that God has spoken beforehand? Um, I was racking my brain, and honestly, I'm not really smart enough to, to show you that this is how we know without a doubt that God has spoken. And so I'm just going to ask that we keep an open mind and that if you do see Jesus in this, if the argument that the New Testament is making seems to be valid, then let's just let's keep an open mind. Let's see, let's see if God is truly speaking through these people. So, Messianic prophecies. The first one that I want to go to is Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a mysterious passage in the Old Testament. It's about this great exaltation of this human being, the Son of Man. This person, I'll just read it for you, this person who's going to inherit the entire kingdom of God. But it's a human being. I'll read it for you. Verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. The literal word for that is a human being. I looked, like, I looked, and there was one like a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's interesting. In their thought, worship belongs to God alone, and there is only one God, yet a human being is receiving God's kingdom. I don't know what they did with that text. It's probably a mystery. In the Old Testament, Jesus in Mark 16, 
It says this. It's before the Sanhedrin. This is the last thing he says before they crucify him. They ask, are you the Messiah? And he responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Almighty in heaven, coming on the clouds. You will see that person in Daniel 7, the human being exalted to the throne. And it is me. I am the fulfillment of that. The human being that is going to be with God, that is me standing before you. That's Daniel 7, receiving all authority. Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 says this, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. I find this text interesting because God is the one speaking in this time. God is the one who is speaking through the prophet, and he says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced. God? Like, how do you pierce God? And then they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly as one grieves a firstborn son. They will pierce God and grieve as one grieves a firstborn son. God is pierced, and yet they mourn for another person as if that person was a firstborn son. It's kind of interesting. A mysterious text in, in Zechariah 12. John 19 looks at that, and in the moment of the crucifixion, when Jesus Christ, the firstborn of God, God incarnate, is pierced, he says that this was to fulfill those scriptures. That God was pierced, and that they did mourn as if the firstborn had died, but it was the firstborn of God to fulfill the scriptures. Isaiah 52 is another one. Isaiah 52, by the way, I'm just going to say this beforehand. Um, Some skeptics have looked at Isaiah 52, and they have seen the story of Jesus so clearly that they have... They have rationalized that Christians must have went back into the Old Testament and written Jesus in there because he is, it looks like the gospel. I'll just read it for you. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who are appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, by his marring, he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. You remember that passage that we're talking about? God's will that Jesus would die on behalf of the people and we both have redemption through him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering to sin for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. He starts speaking of this, this resurrection after death. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After dying, he will see light of life. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Or as some texts say, by knowledge of him, the righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. We could keep going. Skeptics and Christians alike see the gospel so clearly in those verses, the redemption of the world through the death of one man on the cross. That is like, like what do you do with that? Like, what, like what, do you do with, what do you do with Isaiah? Isaiah 53 some have rationalized that the story of Jesus was fictional, and that's just not true. The, the story of Jesus itself has historical credibility to it. Others, as I said before, um, say that Christians revised ancient text. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Like this, in my opinion, is the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> Either these two things have such coincidence that maybe God had spoken beforehand about it, or Christians came back and, and wrote it into Isaiah 53. But I want to share something with you. Um, there is... I'll, just, I'll give you the story first before I share the, the, the fact. In 1946, uh, there is an incredible archaeological discovery that happened um, called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the way this discovery happened is actually kind of cool. Um, it is in Palestine, there was this, uh, this shepherd that was looking for his sheep. Okay? And the way that he would look for sheep after a rain is they would all go into tunnels um, because of the rain. I don't know. I'm not a shepherd. Okay? That's what sheep do. They don't want to get wet. Their, their cloth would shrink. I don't know. Um, and so he'd take a rock, and he threw it in the caves. And if it made a sound, then he would know that his sheep were in there, and he'd go get them out. And while he was throwing cave, rocks in caves in Palestine, he heard a jar break. And he went in there, and he found several jars that were full of these ancient manuscripts that had been left untouched in this buried-away area. And he takes these manuscripts to the local archaeologist and has them analyzed. And here is the following headline in the Wall Street Journal. The Four Dead Sea Scrolls. Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Like, this is like some Indiana Jones crap, you know? <laughs> 
But this is true. This is, this is in 1946. And this sparked one of the greatest, ar- the greatest archaeological digs in the modern century. This is what uh, W.F. Albright says, the greatest archaeological find in the modern times. They found through this cache of, um, of stored manuscript um, uh, writings, um, like each, how do you say this? Um, things, uh, manuscripts, I keep saying manuscripts like everyone knows what that is. Um, ancient texts that date back 100 to at least 100 BC of every single book of the Bible except Esther. Sorry, Esther, you don't get any love. But every single book of the Bible was found in that findings. And I, I don't even know, I think that I've heard they're still finding stuff from those, those series. Um, that is incredible for so many reasons. One, it shows that everything, um, all the transmission in the Old Testament, there's incredible a continuity between the two. Um, but one of my favorite findings in this was um, they found a complete word-for-word accurate scroll of the prophet Isaiah that dated back to at least before 100 BC. That's 100 years before the time of Jesus. So that shows you that whatever was written down in those times was written down before Jesus came, that these were not altered, that God has kept his promises. And that is what Peter is trying to get across to his people. He's like, we have seen it. We have seen Jesus. When the people found this out for the first time, the biblical scholars they said there's dancing in the, in the hallways of the university. When I found this out for the first time in the university, uh, I was going through a lot of doubts about, is prophecy real? Is my faith based on solid foundation? And I'm not going to lie to you. Um, when I found out that there was this historical validity to the Christian faith that archaeology itself had, had, had backed up, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I, I cried. <laughs> Because it shows, Christians, it shows that there's history, there's truth, that God has written it down and promised and that Jesus has came and fulfilled those promises. And that I don't know how, how much we can prove it, like, with, like, I don't, I don't know how much I can get it in you. But in the words of Peter, I believe it, and in the words of Peter, I think you can believe it too, that therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I think you can know it for certain, and I think you can know it, if not for certain, at least incredibly, incredibly credible stuff. God has kept his promises through Jesus. Or in the words of Paul, all the promises of God are yes and amen. That's the first part, that we can know that God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. The second thing that I want to ask for tonight is, what does it mean for us to have Jesus as our Lord and Messiah? 
So let's take a break, and then we'll come back here in a moment. Okay, um, so we spent the first half talking about um, knowing or proving through Messianic prophecy, following Peter's logic, um, that all the house of Israel would know with certainty. I mean, Peter can say that because he saw it. Um, to know with certainty that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and Messiah. In the second half, what I'd like to do is just, is just apply it to us. What does it mean for us that He is our Lord and our Messiah? Messiah meaning Savior. What does it mean that Jesus is our Lord and Savior? Peter gets the microphone and he has one chance to speak. They didn't even give him a chance. They just said, you're drunk. And he said, Jesus. Um, And he preaches the Gospel. He preaches the Gospel. He preaches the Gospel to the people who killed Christ. He pulls no punches. Jesus, who you crucified. And you want to know something crazy? Is that they responded. Peter is proclaiming it to the ones who killed him, and the ones in the crowd, they, they repented. They believe. They saw that they needed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The very ones that were there killing him were the ones that said, I need you. I need you as my Lord and Savior. And you th- I just I want you to be honest. I feel like we're in a different context. I feel like our context is different. We either believe that we don't need saving, or we act as if Jesus is not really our Lord, or only partially our Lord. We either believe that we don't need saving, or we act as if Jesus isn't really our Lord. I think that's what we do in our, in our society. And I want to start with the second one, acting as if Jesus is only partially our Lord or not really our Lord. Have you ever thought of what the word Lord means? Like, most of us, when we think of Lord, we kind of think of it as another name for God, like Lord God, like God, God. But Lord, um, it means someone who has authority over you. When you're calling Jesus or you're calling God Lord, you are saying that He is the boss, the owner, the master, the head coach, the sovereign, the king. Do you really believe that Jesus is your master? Do you act like it? Do you believe that you belong to Him and to Him alone? The words of 1 Corinthians 16, 6, 19-20 come to mind. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. I don't know if we fully believe that or if we act like it in church, in our Christian culture. I think many of us are baptized into the Christian culture, but we haven't really been baptized into the Lordship of Jesus. We know to go to church. We know to read our Bible. We know how to say the right things. But when it comes to all areas, Jesus is Lord, He is owner, He is master, He is boss. I don't know if we were baptized into that, or that's how we think about our Christianity and our discipleship. There are many in the church who want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him as Lord. And I think there's people here too. I know at least I live that way sometimes. 
But the problem is that you can't have Jesus as Savior without Him as Lord. They go together. You can't confess Him on Sunday and live how you want on the weeks. That is not Christianity. That is cultural Christianity. And I think this comes, this idea of lordship, this idea of a authority above us, uh, us having a problem with that, I think this kind of comes with us having just a, a general problem of authority. I think our age has a, a problem with authority. Um, at least I know that's how I was raised. Um, from the earliest age, um, we have these pictures of vacation. My problem with authority comes from my dad. I'll just, I'll just come out right and say it like this. Um, my dad hated being told what to do at all, okay? If you put up a rule, he would break it. If you, there's a speed limit, he would go over it. It's kind of like his thing. It's like his character trait. And I know I inherited that. Um, from a young age, and I'm not kidding you, um, like there's pictures of us on vacation, and it clearly says, it clearly says, do not cross this line. And we have my dad doing like this, <laughs> just going right over it. I know that's where I got my problem with authority. But for our culture, I think our culture, I think us, we, it goes a little deeper that we all have a problem with authority. If there's a line, we want to cross it. If there's a rule, we want to break it. That no one can tell us how to live our lives. I'm just being honest. Um, some of this comes from authorities that have failed us. That people we trust, people that we've looked to, they, they, don't, they don't live up to expectation. We've seen police brutality. We've seen pastors fall from office. We've seen government officials embezzle. You name it, we've seen it. Authorities fail. And I don't know if that's where it comes from, but I know we just have a problem with authority. The rules are put into place, and if we don't see a reason for them, then we don't submit to them. The problem is, even with that last statement, if I don't see a reason for it, then I won't submit to it. I have just made myself the authority, the ultimate authority in my life. The problem is, is that there is an ultimate authority, and you have to choose. You have to choose what that's going to be. Are you going to be the authority in your life? Or are you going to submit to something greater than yourself? Are you going to trust the authority of someone greater, of something that's possibly good? And I just want to say this, I don't know if everyone agrees with this statement, um, but how good is it that Jesus is that ultimate authority, that Jesus is Lord? You heard the story earlier that Jesus came and died for everyone, that the King, the Lord, the owner, the boss, above everyone else, He took it upon Himself to humble himself beyond anything. He was marred. He was disfigured. He humbled himself to the cross so that we could be raised up. That is the ultimate authority. That is the Lord we submit to. How good is it that that, that is the Lord?
That is the authority. His decrees, his rules are meant for your good. I was sitting in a, a sermon one time that was trying to get this point across, okay? That the lordship of Jesus and that his decrees are for our good. That we have a problem with authority, but that his decrees are meant for our good. And the pastor that I was listening to, he was doing such a great job. I was at this church camp. I think there might have been some people at that, at that, that uh, church camp too. So let me know if you were there. I'll get to that point here in a little bit. Um, but I was sitting at this at Sayokomo, and this guy was he, he was telling a story about how the decrees of Jesus are meant for your good, and he was he was relating it to himself as a father with his child. He had a three-year-old girl, and um, there was a moment when his three-year-old was getting closer and closer to a wall socket, and he would tell her he was like, "Hey, don't go near that wall socket," and she would like look up. And he'd be like, he'd like go back to reading, and then she'd like get closer to the wall socket. He's like, hey, I told you, don't get closer to that wall socket. And she's like, get closer to the wall socket. And then eventually, like when she got close enough to like endanger herself, he like put down his book, he rushed over there, he said, no, don't do that. And of course she's crying, she's upset, she thinks that he's, he's mean and that his rules and his authority is bad, but his, his rules and authority are meant for her good. That's the point he's trying to get across, that God is the same way. It's a beautiful point. Beautiful point. It's not the point that I'm trying to get across right now. Okay? Because while I was in that sermon, and I kid you not, I am, this is 100% honest, I'm sitting here. I'm not taking notes. I'm just I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. I'll use that for a sermon one day. <laughs> I don't have kids, but I'll use it. I'm like, yeah, that's good. Okay? I get tapped on the shoulder. Okay? I'm like, what? And there's another sponsor. That's up, and they're like, what the heck? I look over there, and this is a high school camp, by the way. There is a kid that is fingering a wall socket. Okay? <laughs> And then, and then when that didn't work out, I'm kidding you not, he goes like this. And I go over there, and I just smack his hand. I'm like, what are you doing, boy? Like, in the middle of his sermon. And he's like, oh, nothing. Nothing. Like, like I'm mad at me. Like, I'm mad at me. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Like, how ironic. In the middle of a sermon about the decrees being for his good, like, he is like... Oh, that wall socket sounded brilliant. <laughs> you know, like, he goes for it. He goes for it. I, I tell that because one, it's crazy. Um, but two, when we're talking about the authority and lordship of Jesus, Christians, I think that we are like that kid that's trying to stick his finger in the wall socket. In the middle of a sermon about how good the authority of God, how His decrees are meant for our wholeness and life, we turn the other way. We listen, but I don't think we truly believe. Or we obey enough to where we convince ourselves of our own Christianity, but in our hearts, we try to look for the out. Can I just say this? Christians, 
You are not unlucky. You are not missing out on the lifestyle of the world. Peter calls it the the crooked and broken generation is not having more fun than you. The wall socket is not more fun. (laughs) Let, Let the kid find out the hard way. So many of us here are trying the least amount of authority, the least amount of Christianity, because we think the fun's on the other side. And I don't think we believe that the Lordship of Jesus is for our own good. Can I just say this? The Lordship is better than anything that you're seeking. I don't know if it's drugs. I don't know if it's sex. I don't know whatever it is. Jesus is better and his ways are better. His decrees are meant for your life and for the life eternal. He is a good master. Can't have Jesus as Savior and reject him as Lord. And my hope is that you accept him fully and not live lives of quiet rejection, passive rejection, because that is not That is not Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Is He your Lord? Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. Problem is, I don't think many of us truly believe that we need saving. But have you ever been sick? And have you ever been so sick that you know, like, it's it's bad. Like, this is not, like, like, good. Like, this is not, like, Take, pop some ibuprofen sick. This is like, this is like bad sick. You see, I was raised um, the type of family where we don't go to the doctor, okay? The doctor is here to steal your money, okay? You get to skip school if you have a fever or if you're puking or maybe bleeding, okay? But y- you can skip school, but you're not going to the doctor, okay? That's the devil. Sorry if you want to be doctors, but... That's how I was raised. But have you ever been so sick when you you know that, like, dude, we got to go. We got to go. There was a point in COVID hit when I was the sickest that I've ever been. I was sick for 14 days. 14 days staying in a single room apartment. That's a little crazy. And on day number 12... And I started, I, I woke up, and I was going to um, the bathroom in the middle of the night, and then I woke up on the floor. I, I apparently had passed out on the way there. And so I had never passed out before. And so I try to stand up, and then I wake up on the floor again. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at my pain. <laughs> Sorry, we'll make a joke. We'll make a joke of everything. Um, and then I wake up again. And it, I think I stand up again. It took me three times for me to realize that I was passing out because I'm stupid, okay? Um, but here's the point. Here's the point. In that moment, I was not thinking about eating right, getting a better lifestyle. I was not thinking, is the doctor out to get me. I was not thinking anything that could be keeping me. I had one thought in my mind. I knew I had a need 
and one person had it, and it was the doctor, man. I, I was scared. And I went. Our culture tells us that we are whole, that we are good in ourselves, that there is no brokenness, that there's no such thing as evil. Our culture does not know how to handle evil. Evil is something that's out there. Evil is not something that's in here. But if I can just be honest, I don't think that that's not my experience. And I don't know if that's your experience either. I believe what the Bible says. That each one of us has a sickness. That, that we are not right. That there is brokenness about us. That God has a perfect standard. That He has, this is what human life and flourishing and loving others perfectly is. And we can't meet it. We can't do it. We fail. We're sick. And when we're sick, like I was sick on that floor, how wrong would it be to just say, I'm not. I ignore it. Make other kinds of things. Just Maybe it'll go away. No, we're sick, and we need a healer. And Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our Savior. He is here to do that. He is here to save us. He is here to make us whole. No matter how evil, how bad, how broken, or whatever you've lived your life, and no matter how good you've lived your life, we all need a Savior. I mean, that's part of my story. My story, born and raised in the church, baptized at the age of seven. I've lived a really good life. And in society's standards, I've, I've, I've done it. I'm, I'm a good person. But society isn't the one that judges that kind of thing. Society can't tell me right or wrong and can't make me whole inside. I need something greater that's outside of me. I need a Savior, and Jesus saved me. A dumb country boy, at the age of seven, he washed away my sins. And then Jesus saved me from pornography at the age of 17. And then he saved me from deep depression at the age of 23. Then he saved me from anger and hurt and betrayal at the age of 25. He saved me and he saved me again and again. It's who he is. Jesus is the Savior. And he can be yours too. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you have. But listen to me. There is nothing too big for him. There is no pain too deep. Nothing that others did to you and nothing that you did to yourself that can keep you from the Savior. A lifetime of self-hatred, that feeling that you are not living up to what you meant to be. Maybe it came from family, putting a standard on you that you can't do. Maybe it came from bullies. Maybe it came from within. It's self-hatred. Jesus can save you from that and give you an unshakable identity that is in heaven itself. Maybe it's sexual addictions that you are too ashamed to admit to anyone, too ashamed to admit to your best friend. Jesus already knows this. Jesus knows the deepest, darkest thing about you, and he does not raise his eyebrows at you. 
He loves you and is not ashamed of you. He doesn't reject you and is ready to save you and make you whole. Maybe it's that fear that you have that everyone will abandon you because that's what people always do. People leave. People walk away from your life. So you try so hard to please everyone so that people will just love you for once in your life. Man, you will do anything for anyone. You'll become anything for anyone just so that people won't leave. That fear of abandonment haunts you. Jesus can save you from that. And he promises that he will not leave you. Even when everyone else leaves you, he will be with you forever. Jesus is the Savior. It's what he came to do. Listen to the, Rome, the words of Romans 8:38. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither height nor depth, angel, demon, nothing in the past or in the future, nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ, our Savior. I need a Savior. I still need a Savior every day. And you do too. Turn to Him. Christians, Continue to turn to Him. Non-Christians, make Him the Savior of your life. He is Lord and He is Savior. That is the message that the church has always proclaimed, that Jesus is here to save. And that's what Peter said to them, the people that killed Jesus, and then he calls them to respond. And I'm just going to read you his words. He says, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to reign and rule completely over your life and give you life in abundance. And then he says this in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart as if it was a knife that had gone to them and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied to them, repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise of God, is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He says to them, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And if I can just add this, walk in the Spirit of God. The church proclaims the gospel and they say you have to respond to it. You can't walk away like a nice message, like good message, I feel good about my life now and then I can go live how I want it. You have to respond to Jesus. Jesus is Lord and He is Savior. Is He Lord and Savior of your life? Peter walks through some pretty clear steps there. I'll walk you through them again. Maybe there's some of you that need to just repent. You need to find someone. You say, this is how I've been living, and it's outside the Lordship of Christ. I want to just call you. I want to call you to repentance. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Repent. Maybe there's some of you that haven't been baptized yet. There's this fear of man, this fear of, of committing fully. I don't know what it would be, but, but I just want you to know that Jesus is not ashamed of you. Do not be ashamed of Him. We will come around you and celebrate you as the family of God. Repent 
and be baptized. And then finally, receive and walk in the Spirit of God, the presence of God that you were made for that will never leave you. I don't know what you've been experiencing tonight. I don't know if God has spoken to you, but I just want to encourage you this. If there is a time you feel that God is speaking to you through this or through the worship, there's going to be all kinds of ministers and people back there, or you have friends, please find someone and say, this is what I feel and this is how I want to respond. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Make Him Lord and Savior of your life. Amen.